We come to another difficult passage. Uh, if you thought the Lord was going to let us off easy with a light and fluffy text as we wrap up a back this morning, ain't going to happen. Um, this text in this book really deals with what is known as the problem of evil. But aren't we grateful that God has no problem wrapping his brain around this? This is not a problem to God. It's a, it's a problem for us as we try to explain these things. But this is the way it usually goes. If God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there evil in the world? Skeptics say, since evil exists, then if, if God is all-good, then he's not powerful enough to get rid of it. Or they'll say the opposite. They'll say, if, if God is all-powerful, then he's not good enough to want to get rid of evil. And they say God can't be good and all-powerful since evil exists. Some people say this is the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. And I've had a fascination with researching and learning, trying to, try to understand this thought better because, well, have you ever had a conversation with a college student? This is usually one of the first questions they ask. And so I think the Lord has brought me on a journey through my time here at Southside to ask and research. And, and by his providence, he's brought us to the book of Habakkuk that deals with this head on. Because essentially that's what Habakkuk's asking, especially from chapter 1. He is questioning God's power and his goodness. To recap, in, in chapter 1, Habakkuk questions God's power. Why do you idly look at sin? Because God wasn't judging Judah according to Habakkuk's timeline. He wasn't disciplining them for their sin. But God answers him by saying that he is raising up the Babylonians to judge his people. But then that leads to another question at the end of chapter 1. And Habakkuk questions God's goodness by asking, why do you allow the wicked to take over a nation less evil than itself? That doesn't make sense. Then in chapter 2, God answers by promising the righteous will live by faith. And the wicked will be destroyed. That's where we left off last week. He goes through the five woes against Babylon. He assures Habakkuk that he is going to win. And currently, he is reigning and ruling on his throne over all the universe. And that's where we left off last week in chapter 2, verse 20. But in case you hadn't noticed, there still isn't an answer to Habakkuk's question of why. Why is this happening? Why do bad things happen to at least less wicked people is essentially what Habakkuk's asking. Now God is, is God and he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe Habakkuk anything. He doesn't have to give us a reason. 
But friends, what we will find here in Habakkuk chapter 3 is the answer to Habakkuk's question. And in turn, what we will find is ultimately, ultimately, we may not know every circumstance, but ultimately why God allows this evil. God tells Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 2, to wait for a vision and it will come in God's perfect timing. And chapter 3 is the arrival of this vision. The vision is a theophany. We talked about that some last week. It's an appearance of God. So God now comes onto the scene and Habakkuk describes what he has seen. So notice in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, 738 in the book in the Bible in the chair back in front of you. Verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So what Habakkuk's doing here is he's writing a psalm. In Shigianoth, there's some debate over what exactly this means, but it seems like Shigianoth is a tune for this psalm to be sung to. And Habakkuk is saying here, he declares what he has heard. And what he has heard is what the Lord has done in the past. He's praying, Lord, I've heard of your work in the past. Please revive it. Please work again. You've worked in wrath, interlaced with mercy. Please do it again. And what we see in this next section is Habakkuk describing the theophany, and he's using various word pictures. Okay, He's using descriptors of ways God has worked in the past to save his people through judgment. All right, so let's, let's look at this and, and see, for example, what, what this actually looks like. So in verse 3, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So this is a word picture of what's happening. He's using past events to, 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 to ask God to work again in such a way. Taman and Mount Paran were places that the Israelites went through right after crossing the Red Sea. Habakkuk is seeing this vision and and recalls the events of the Exodus, basically, is what's happening. The judgment of God destroys the Egyptians because of their unrepentance and wickedness. And thereby, he saves his people. But it says, God's splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. But did this actually happen? Was did the whole earth sing his praise? Well, for the Israelites, on that day, it did. That's what happened for the Israelites. They sang his praises in Exodus 14. But this also serves as a picture of the future and ultimate victory that is to come. One day again, God's wrath will destroy his enemies like he did the Egyptians, and he will save his people. And his splendor, 
will cover the heavens and the whole earth will be full of his praise. All right, so what else does Habakkuk see in this vision? Let's look at verse 4. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. So he's, he's seeing this, but what this recalls and what he's, what he's really kind of referring back to is really Mount Sinai, another theophany where God shows up on the scene where there is fire and lightning, but yet it was veiled on Mount Sinai. His, the theophany of God coming on Mount Sinai was veiled by darkness and smoke. Let's keep reading, verse five and six. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So the words pestilence and plague actually they are those things, but they actually do um, correlate with Canaanite deities as well. And what does it say? What's he doing with plague and pestilence? It's like he's got them on a leash like a dog. The word picture shows how kings would have had servants go before them and, and come after them. So God used the plagues of the Exodus, for example to accomplish his plans. God is sovereign over these evil things by having them on a leash to accomplish his purposes. It goes on, it says, he measured the earth and scatters the mountains. Things like the Rocky Mountains that seem so everlasting and eternal, he could just look at them and they're destroyed. His ways are the everlasting ways. Not the Himalayas, not the Rocky Mountains. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now what's going on here? Well, God afflicts the Kushanites and the Midianites because they took his people captive in Judges chapter 3. That's what he's recalling back to right here. So what happens when you mess with God's people? You will be judged. They were afflicted. Back then, in the same way, Babylon will be afflicted by God. God won't let them have the final say over his people. That's what we were reminded of last week. He keeps going in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. He's basically asking, were you angry with the Red Sea when you parted it? Or when you crossed the Jordan River? Was, were you angry at bodies of water? I love this picture that he's painting. It's like God's just driving his chariot right through the middle of the Red Sea. So was he angry at these bodies of water? Well, no. No, he was angry at the wicked and the mountains and the rivers and the sea are means of God's destruction upon his enemies. They're the, they're the byproducts of God's judgment on the wicked. 
All right, so let's just take a little breather. At this point, is anyone else just a tad bit intimidated? Between last week and this week, we may be asking the same thing Habakkuk is. Why is God destroying the wicked and causing all this destruction? We may be asking, where's the mercy? What's the point of all this destruction? But Habakkuk starts to reveal God's intentions here. He starts to reveal God's answer. He calls God's chariot, this, this means of military judgment, it's basically like a tank. He calls his, his tank your chariot of salvation. So how is this war vehicle salvific? Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 9. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. God is splitting the earth with rivers. Mountains see God and writhe in pain. The deepest parts of the earth surrender and have no voice. The sun and the moon can do nothing but stand still in their place when seeing God's arrows and spear. Yeah, we've got reason to be intimidated. He marches through the earth in passionate fury and anger, threshing the nations. Have you ever seen someone thresh wheat? It's not gentle. You've got to separate the, the chaff from the berry, the, the wheat berry. You've got to usually pound it, put it in a sack and pound it or, or put it on the floor and, and stomp on it. And then you've got to throw it up in the air and the wind will blow the chaff away and the, berry, the wheat berry will fall. And God will one day separate the chaff from the wheat, the sheep from the goats. God's going to do this. But why is God doing this? Why is God so furious and angry? And verse 13 tells us. Verse 13 says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Us Americans, we have a problem with violent passages like this because we don't understand how evil sin is, how holy God is, or how great his love is for his people. We hear of all this destruction and pestilence and, and fury and warfare language, and we think, I couldn't worship a God like that. That's so mean. And then what we'll do is we try to justify it by saying, well, God in the Old Testament is scary, but that's why Jesus came to be the kind, gentle, and forgiving Savior that he is. But friends, we don't understand how evil sin is and how great God's love is. 
He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. All right, so how does God save his people? How, how do we know that from history? How does God ultimately save his people? All the children in the room said, the right answer, Jesus. Jesus. So this passage says that Jesus, he is the head crusher. Jesus is the culmination of this violent pursuit of the salvation of God's people. Sin is so evil that only God in the flesh, Jesus, could be the one to destroy it. And he is the only one who loves perfectly enough and passionately enough to save his people. Now, where am I getting, how, how am I getting Jesus as the head crusher? Where's that coming from? This, this rescue mission that Jesus is on, that God is on for his people, this goes all the way back to Genesis. This is all part of the plan. This goes back to Genesis 3, when the serpent was promised that one of Eve's offspring would crush one of his offspring. So Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This also is continued in the story of David and Goliath. David, the Christ figure, kills Goliath with a sling and a stone, but then cuts off his head with his own sword. Or when, when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue representing all the most powerful empires of that time being destroyed by a rock. You remember this? This rock then grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is Jesus destroying the wicked and setting up his kingdom. Psalm 110 verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. In Revelation 12 and in chapter 20, the serpent of old, the dragon, will be defeated forever and ever. In Revelation 19, Jesus is the rider on a white horse who judges the nations and treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So Jesus is the crusher of the wicked. That's how this ultimately culminates. God will eventually judge Babylon, and it is ultimately judged by Christ on the cross and on Judgment Day. But why is Jesus doing this? Why is he crushing the wicked for the salvation of his people? He is violently passionate to save his people. Like a husband whose wife was kidnapped, he pursues her and will get her back at all costs. He will save his people and leave his enemies utterly destroyed for their wickedness. How's he going to do this? I think verses 14 and 15 kind of shows what's going to happen. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So not only is he going to destroy his enemies, he's going to do it, he's going to destroy his enemies by their own devices. 
And this echoes back to last week when we saw Babylon being destroyed by their own devices. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. It says, his horses will trample the sea. This echoes back to Psalm 74. Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Leviathan is always a symbol of chaos. And God is the crusher of chaos. And again, this same language is used in Isaiah 27.1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is our king. This is the one who saves us. So instead of seeing God as mean and angry for no reason, see him as who he is. The all powerful warrior who will stop at nothing to save his people. Babylon will be destroyed and God's people will be saved. How does he do this? His wrath and his love ultimately culminate at one point in history. The cross. Nothing can stop this warrior king who saves. No evil is too big. His people are not too far gone. He will save his people with violent passion. So that's what God does. He saves his people ultimately through judgment of the wicked. And then we see Habakkuk's response here, what Jim read for us, starting in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What we see here is Habakkuk's faith is now taking action. He resolves to wait for the destruction of the wicked. Oh, Habakkuk's feeble, all right. Habakkuk is fearful intimidated with rottenness in his bones. But in spite of all that, he will wait for God's promises to come true. And this now leads into the culminating passage of the book. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Friends, even when there is evidences all around us to not believe, when the very source of our physical sustenance is destroyed, when the wicked seem to flourish, when we see no hope around us, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. So what is the point of this destruction of the wicked? It's the salvation of his people. And so the immediate context of Habakkuk is God disciplining his people through the Babylonians. Judah was a wicked nation. They were not following the Lord. And so as an act to bring them back to himself, he brings the Babylonians in to discipline them and bring them back to him. And though at times we do experience the discipline of the Lord for direct sins, at other times we experience bad things that are not necessarily related to discipline for sins. In either case, though, the principle remains the same. God is working through the bad to bring about our salvation. God is working through the bad to bring about our salvation. So friends, whenever we experience a trial or when we experience God's faithful discipline for sin, we should respond like Habakkuk has, by faith in God. Habakkuk went from questioning the very character of God in chapter 1. Then he goes to waiting for God's response in chapter 2, verse 1. And now he is rejoicing in the midst of suffering in chapter 3. And this is a picture of faith that saves Faith that we live by, according to chapter 2, verse 4. This is the whole point of the book. God answers Habakkuk's question, why do bad things happen to God's people? And ultimately, for their salvation in him, through their faith, because he is the destroyer of the wicked and the savior of his people. So as we wrap up the whole book, I've got four truths that I want to help equip you all with from the book of Habakkuk. So if you take notes, this may be the time to really write these down. I encourage you to write these down for as the trials that you're going through right now or the trials that will come. So four truths that we can learn from the book of Habakkuk. Number one. God is sovereign over the actions of the wicked. God is sovereign over the actions of the wicked. Now there's more here than I can pastorally, pastorally walk you through in just one sermon. But it's here in Habakkuk. And so we need to address it in its capacity. 
Just look at verse 6 of chapter 1. For behold, I, this is God talking, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Or verse 13 of chapter 1, when Habakkuk responds, he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God could have stopped it all, but he chose not to for ultimate salvation. Chapter 3, verse 5. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. That's hard. That's difficult to wrap our brains around. But God allows evil things for his ultimate glory. He has it on a leash. It cannot go farther than he allows. Satan in the book of Job is a great example of this. Satan could only do what only God allowed. God is sovereign over that. Babylon did exactly what it wanted to do. It wanted to build up its empire become rulers of the whole world. And God wanted that empire to be built up too, but he wanted it for very different reasons. He was raising them up for the discipline of his people and ultimately for their salvation. Babylon wanted their own glory and God wanted his own. So that was number one. God is sovereign over the actions of the wicked. Number two, the wicked will be destroyed. Just think back to last week. That was all what last week was about with the five woes, the five destructions upon Babylon. Then again, we see in chapter 3, verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. God was destroying them through that because of their wickedness. And then in uh, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, you crushed the head of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. I guess part of the question we need to ask is who or what is the wicked? And this, this scenario, it's Babylon and Judah, if we're being honest, too. But ultimately, it's everything that is anti-God. It's everyone who remains as we were, haters of God. And what this is saying is that justice will be served. It will either be served through Jesus' atonement on the cross or on judgment day. God is worthy of worship because he will bring the wicked to justice. Number one, God is sovereign over the actions of the wicked. Number two, the wicked will be destroyed. Number three, the righteous will live by faith. We start to see the beginning of Habakkuk's faith here or, or the, the, maybe the roots of his faith starting, starting to take root in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And in chapter 2, verse 4, behold, his soul, the wicked, the wicked soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And we see a back example of this, living out this faith in Chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What this shows is that the righteous are imperfect, but we will remain in our faith. Not in a one-time decision, as we saw last week, is a continuation of faith. It's living by faith. We will live by our faith. This is both a promise that we will continue and that we will fight on and we will endure. And it is a challenge for us to do so. It's a promise that we will live by faith and it's a challenge for us to keep living by faith. Lastly, number four. God will judge the wicked to save his people. Again, 2 verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And then we see the promise of what this looks like when his people are saved. Chapter 2 verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wicked will not be there. It will only be God in perfect communion with his people. Chapter 3, verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And friends, let's not forget that God worked through the worst evil in human history to save his people. This is how God works. The innocent king of the universe was condemned to die by the hands of sinful men. Even in this darkest moment of human history, God was especially working for the salvation of his people. So dear brother and sister, press on. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Cast your hope on him. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what sin you are constantly being tempted with. Cast yourself on Christ. I don't know what physical trials you're going through right now. God has ordained that for your salvation. Trust in him. I don't know what prayer you are praying that doesn't seem to be answered, dear brother and sister, keep praying, keep trusting in God. 
keep throwing yourself on the God who is working even that trial for your salvation. And may we learn to say what Spurgeon said. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Through the terrible pain that you're experiencing, call your soul to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in the God who uses these trials to save his people through their faith in him. So the answer as to why God is allowing Babylon to take over his people was ultimately for their salvation. This captivity allows God to save Judah. He is the warrior who's going to come in and, and save and bring his people to himself and crush the wicked. Whatever you're going through, especially, friend, if you are not a believer, let this sin that you are defined by as someone who is not a Christian, let this sin you're defined by, let it push you towards faith in Christ that he is the answer for salvation. Turn to him, repent of your sins, and turn to him. Whatever you're going through, I pray your faith in God will be strengthened. For that is the very reason why he is allowing this happen to you.